Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host Eddie Palmgren and with me in the studio is my friend and colleague Niklas Sävos. How are you? I'm really good. We have had summer holiday here and uh, also a weekend now so I'm, I'm refreshed and really excited to, to begin. And uh, today we had the great pleasure of talking to Christian Billinger, the manager of Billinger Förvaltning and a contributor to Investing by the Books. Some of you listeners may remember Christian from episode 8, where he interviewed Lawrence Cunningham about his book Quality Investing. And we also did a short interview with Christian in Omaha, which you find in episode 21. And for today's episode, our guest has selected the book Investing for Growth by Terry Smith. Here comes our conversation with Christian Billinger. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be on. I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, um, and I've listened to a number of the previous episodes. So, so glad to be here. Where are you today? So I'm currently in Karlstad, Sweden. Um, so I spend some of my time here. I spend most of my time in London, but uh, the company I run is, is still based in Karlstad and I have family and friends here. So I've come up here with a family for for a couple of weeks uh, to work from here and to sort of holiday up here. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's great to be back here for the, for the summer. Okay. And let's start with the, the early days. How did your passion for investing start? Yeah. So I've been investing for, for over 25 years now. Um, so I started investing when I was 16 or 17 and um, my parents wanted to basically wanted to encourage myself and my sister to learn about, saving and investing and they put some money into a brokerage account for both of us um and so this was in the late 90s with um the sort of dot-com bubble and everything and that was a very exciting time to be getting into in, investing and and probably a good time to learn about investing as well because we got that break in the market so um that taught me a few lessons um and i've been investing ever since then and and later on, I decided to make a career of it. So first, I worked as an analyst uh, for a number of different European equities funds. And then since 2015, I've been investing through my own uh, company. So I guess in total, I've been investing for a little over 25 years and professionally for a little bit more than 15 years. And for today's episode, you have chosen the book Investing for Growth. Why? So. I guess it's probably helpful if I just briefly summarize the sort of message of the book and, and then I'll get to the reasons I chose the book. Um, so it's, it's basically a collection of articles and letters to shareholders of the Fundsmith Equity Fund. And this was published to mark the 10th anniversary of the fund. Um, and, and Terry Smith, who's the manager of the fund, has a very simple philosophy, which I'm sure we'll get back to. So basically he's his sort of worldview is that stocks follow earnings and there's a small subset of great companies which are able to avoid mean reverting, at least for very long periods of time. And he basically spends his time looking for those types of businesses. Um, he puts them on a short list and then he waits for an opportunity to buy them when he feels the valuation is at least reasonable, if not cheap. Uh, and then he just sits there. Um, I think so. I think it's important to sort of keep that in mind when just just to sort of provide a bit of context when I answer your question of why have I chosen the book. So I think first of all, the philosophy I just described, I really identify with um, the idea of owning great companies for the long run. 
And when I look at the holdings in our portfolio, there's a lot of overlap with uh, Fundsmith. So in terms of names like L'Oreal and Estee Lauder and Kona, etc., um, I think it's a really useful book because it describes a method that many investors can can replicate. You know, he hasn't generated this great track record by poking around some obscure section of the market. He's he's achieved all of this investing in large and well-known companies and anyone can, can invest in these companies with the click of a button, right? So he owns L'Oreal and Microsoft and Facebook and Novo Nordisk, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's a really useful book. There's nothing sort of exotic or, or unusual about the things he invests in. Um, and I think that speaks to his sort of independence of mind as well. He's, he's found something that clearly works and he doesn't really care what, others might think about the the method, um, you know, whether it sounds smart enough or not. Um, th- there's other examples of people who've invested in similarly large and well-researched businesses with, with great outcomes. So TCI is one example, AKO Capital is another one. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. Um, so that's the first reason, really. I, f- I think it's useful and I, ident- I identify with the sort of philosophy. Secondly, I think it's really fun to read you know, it's not a it's not an academic textbook. It's written by a practitioner, as and it's a collection of articles and letters to shareholders. So it gives you this unique opportunity to sort of follow his reasoning in real time, if you will. You know, as events unfold, as opposed to having been written with the benefit of hindsight. So I think that's great. Um, and then thirdly, I don't necessarily think it's quite as well known as many other great investment books. Um, and, and certainly when it comes to a broad audience, I don't think it's as well known. So they're probably the main reasons um, I've, I've chosen that book. And how long have you followed the work of Terry Smith? So the first time I heard of him was back in 2004. I was doing um, a master's degree at the LSD at the time. And one of the books that we were we were assigned to read before we started the program was Accounting for Growth, which is one of his previous two books. Um, and I immediately thought he writes in a really colorful way and you know he used all these real world examples of accounting irregularities or accounting um manipulation and i thought that was a really great book and then since then i've followed him um more closely since 2010 because that's when he launched fundsmith um i've been invested in the fund for a number of years i read his letters and articles and i go to the agm and all of that. Um, and then in 2015, he, he released a book called Celebrating Five Years of Investing in Decades of Success. And that was to mark the fifth anniversary of Fundsmith. And then obviously at the 10th anniversary, he wrote the book we're discussing today, Investing for Growth. Um, so the the first book I mentioned, um, Celebrating Five Years of Investing, that's sort of the first half of Investing for Growth. And then he's added another five years of, of letters and articles. And as you said before, the book is a chronological collection of all the newspaper articles and annual letters to shareholders that Terry Smith wrote between 2010 and 2020. Do you have a favorite part? I think to me, Nicholas, the the highlight of the book is really reading all these annual letters in sequence. um, And we can come to some of the sort of themes. And then there's also a handful of articles that um, I think really emphasize important aspects of his philosophy. 
I think in terms of the themes from the annual letters, there's there's uh, probably three things. So the first one is he's very, as you read these letters, you realize that Terry Smith is very consistent in terms of his philosophy of investing, but he's very flexible in terms of the implementation. So the philosophy is that he's always looking for these great businesses at reasonable or better valuations. But in terms of implementation, he he will implement this through different types of companies over time. So for instance, for the first five years of the fund, he was he, he had a very large exposure to consumer goods. In the last five years, he's been much more exposed towards US tech. So you see that flexibility in implementation, but he's but he's always looking for great businesses, regardless of sector and geography and market cap. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is um, that he cares about business quality above all else. So he's not saying that valuation is, is unimportant, but um, he thinks it's much less important than business quality. And there's a, there's a great quote in the book where he says, if you're a long-term investor, owning shares in a good company is a much larger determinant of your investment performance than whether the shares were cheap when you bought them. And uh, I think that's a real, really good lesson. Um, and then thirdly, he, he talks about minimizing turnover and costs, the, the doing nothing bit. Um, so they're really the sort of three things he focuses on throughout these annual letters. Um, and I can mention a few articles that I think are especially good as well. Um, so there's, there's a handful of them. Um, the first one's called Return-Free Risk, Why Boring is Best. Um, and that really talks about research that shows that the least volatile stocks can sometimes generate the highest returns, which is obviously, you know, in, in direct contradiction of um, what you're taught at business school and what the efficient markets hypothesis tells us. Um, and what Terry Smith is saying is that high quality businesses tend to be undervalued partly because investors underpay for the, for the near certainty of returns as opposed to the full certainty of returns that you might get. I mean, if there is any such thing as full certainty, but, you know, government bonds, I guess, US, US treasuries might be the closest thing we get to full certainty. So he's saying investors are, are willing to um, underpay significantly for these near certain outcomes, which, which you find in great companies, as opposed to um, the, the full certainty of treasuries, for instance. Now, I think there's a number of other reasons why you have this um, phenomenon of low volatility stocks generating high returns. You know, for instance, this idea that I think a lot of practitioners have that mean reversion also applies to great companies even over five or 10 years, which clearly isn't the case, or the fact that institutional investors tend to have very short uh, time horizons. But I think the point he makes is it's an interesting addition to that debate. Um, Another article, which I think is really interesting, is one called Market Timing, Don't Try This at Home. And he talks about how market timing sounds like a great idea, right? You, you try and buy low and sell high. You know, what's wrong with, with that? Um, and he says, there's nothing wrong with the idea, but the implementation means that almost no one is able to do it, certainly not consistently. And I think even... And this is something most of us, I think, have experienced. Even if you do manage to sell close to the highs, 
often you struggle to get back into these great businesses um, if they ever get down to the sort of valuation that you think is is attractive again. So it's a very pragmatic view of the world. And he refers in this article to a number of uh, pieces of research. And we've all heard this many times. Um, but for instance, if you, if you miss out on average, if you miss out on the best day every year for a decade in the S&P, um, over a number of decades, you will um, you will miss out on about about half half the annual returns. And so, um, you know, I, I think his conclusion is basically that if you buy great if you buy great businesses, you don't need to worry about the selling part, right? Whereas if you if you buy cheap stocks, you need to worry about buying low and selling high. Um, so, third example would be sorting the wheat from the chaff. Um, and that talks about the importance of return on capital as a measure of uh, value creation and how important um, Roki is for long-term investors. Um, and, and of course, Buffett and Munger often talk about the fact that you can't really calculate the cost of capital with any, any great precision. But what you want to do is look for companies where ROC is obviously in excess of any reasonable hurdle rate. So you're not looking for 105 or 11%, right? You're looking for something with a big buffer. Um, and, and the whole point of that, according to Terry, and I agree with this, is that if you invest in those sort of businesses, the intrinsic value of your portfolio will increase every day you hold them. Right. You know, this is similar to what Buffett says that time is the friend of the, the wonderful business and the, the enemy of the mediocre. Um, he talks about diversification in a, in a really good piece that is called too many stocks uh, spoil the portfolio. And in there, he argues that there are, there are benefits to, to uh, diversifying your portfolio, but after about 20 to 30 holdings, most of these benefits have already been achieved. So if I look at most of the the quality investors I I admire, they would have from anywhere from ten to twenty five holdings, and usually they would have something like two thirds of the portfolio in in five to ten stocks. Um, and I think there's a couple of issues, and this is based on Terry's discussion of this topic as well. Um, once you move beyond that number, the first one is that you're having to compromise on on the quality of the businesses, and secondly, your knowledge of these businesses will tend to tend to uh, decline um, and so what so one thing I've often done for instance is to invest in two great companies in very attractive industries because you can reduce company specific risk um, but you have synergies in terms of researching and understanding the industry whereas most mutual funds might own 80 to 100 stocks and I think that's just an extraordinary number right I used to work for someone who said that that kind of portfolio is a case of product management as opposed to money management. And I think that's really, I think that's, there's so much truth uh, to that. So just two more examples of articles. There's one which is called why it is safe to pay up for quality. And that refers to this very longstanding discussion about whether high quality businesses are generally fully valued or over overvalued. And, and this is certainly we've seen, this topic has been very hot in the, in the last few years. Um, it's interesting when I read the book, Investing for Growth, because when you go through the annual letters of Fundsmith, it turns out that Terry 
received those sort of inquiries from investors every year since 2012, right? So in the 12 letter, the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 letters, and, and that's as far as the book goes, in every single one of them, he justifies his philosophy and um, way, of inve- way of investing because he's getting so much uh, grief from investors over valuations. And I, th- I don't think his point is to say we shouldn't care about valuations at all, but I think he is saying that truly great businesses can justify valuations at much higher levels than, than most people um, than most people would think. So if you look at the Fundsmith portfolio over the 10 years, or I guess it's now up to 12 years in existence, it's always been valued at a significant premium or a premium to the market. And it's consistently, apart from in the last six to 12 months, it's consistently outperformed the market. Um, And what Smith talks about is this idea of a justified PE, which is the, the PE you could have paid for a stock going back 20, 30 or 40 years. Uh, and still beat in the market. And for the for the kinds of businesses we're talking about here, like a L'Oreal, often these stretch into the hundreds. Now, you know, obviously I'm not, and I don't think Terry would, would advocate paying those sort of multiples either, but it does give you a bit of comfort around the fact that if, you've, if you identify the great businesses, then valuation is less important. At, now, of course, I do buy the argument that you can't know beforehand how great the business will be, so you don't want to be paying 70 or 100 times earnings, right? But you can certainly pay a meaningful premium to the market if you have good reason to believe it's an outstanding business. And then just final example um, is is an article called Three Steps to Heaven, which where he lays out the philosophy of uh, basically buying good companies, not overpaying, and then doing nothing. And, you know, like like so many good ideas in, in the investing world, it's a very simple set of rules, isn't it? Um, you buy companies with sustainably high returns on capital. You try and um, not not overpay so that you, as an outside investor, also benefit from that value creation. And then you leave compounding alone to work its magic and without incurring any additional costs. Um, so they're, they're probably the, the examples I would highlight. There's many others in there, but I think uh, the the annual letters and a handful of the articles will give you a really good feel for for what the book is all about. I I think it's uh, striking when when you describe this and also from reading the book, how how Terry Smith's philosophy and and Warren Buffett's philosophy are quite similar, but they are not the same. And it's interesting where I think in a few examples, uh, Terry Smith takes up, for example, Tesco and IBM when uh, Buffett has invested in them and, and really breaks down why why he don't think they are really of the quality that he likes. Maybe yeah. maybe you can, because I know, I mean, you're a huge uh, Buffett fan as well. Maybe you can can explain for our, our listeners how similar or, or not similar Smith's and Buffett's styles are. So in many ways, I think when it comes to Berkshire's a portfolio of listed investments, it is it is a very similar sort of mindset and philosophy. Now, of course, Berkshire also holds um, fully owned businesses and an insurance operation, um, and 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 they're obviously very different animals. But I think in terms of the investment portfolio, it was very similar in looking for great companies, not overpaying, and then doing nothing. Obviously, there's differences in terms of the geographical 
mix. Um, although Sunsmith has a very large US exposure, and there's also differences in terms of industry exposure. Um, you know, Terry's been very, um, you know, he's been shifting the portfolio towards US tech in recent years. Um, but but I think there there are probably, to my mind, more similarities and differences. The the examples you mentioned there, Nicholas, in terms of Tesco and IBM, I think focuses on this idea of return on capital employed. And and Terry obviously feels that you should be spending much more time on capital return on capital employed than on EPS growth. Um, so I think in principle I agree with him, and I understand the point he's trying to make, but. I do think that ultimately they should be a reflection of the same thing if you look at this over a long enough time horizon. So just to uh, just to sort of refer to the Tesco case, there's a chart in the book where, where Terry sort of um, graphs Tesco's EPS growth on the one hand, and, and, you know, it's been trend, it was had at least at the time, been trending up for, I think, growing in the low teens for, for a long, long time. At the same time, return on capital employed was in steady decline from around 20% to just over 10%. And so Terry Terry's arguing, um, look, they're having to deploy more and more capital at lower and lower rates to generate the EPS growth. So in principle, I agree with him that return on incremental capital is the sort of variable you want to look at but i don't fully agree with actually in this case with his interpretation so first of all adding more capital to the business can still be accretive as long as the returns are well in excess of the cost of capital um and you obviously need to look at returns on incremental capital now in the case of tesco i think he's right in saying that returns on incremental capital were also meaningfully below 10 percent for a period of time um Fine, but I think in principle, that's important to remember. Probably more important is the second point, that over time, and this is over a very long period of time, I would assume the two um, should converge, right? So if you look at return on capital, which uses um, EBIT in the numerator, that reflects returns both to the debt and equity holders of the company. Um, and so if you want to go from return on capital to earnings growth, you also need to look at the reinvestment rate. So that's a proportion of cash flows or earnings that you can reinvest in the business to generate future earnings. Um, EPS, on the other hand, that should be a product of those two, right? Where the numerator is the earnings after interest um, and the denominator is the share count. So the numerator, um, obviously, if you add more debt to the business, Return on capital would decline, assuming um, unless you can invest it to sort of improve and grow the business. But let's assume in the short to medium term you you don't. Then if you're adding debt, your ROC declines, but so so would the EPS, right? Because you're paying interest on that debt. And if you add more equity, then when you look at the denominator of the EPS sort of calculation, that will have a negative impact on EPS, right? And, and it will also have a negative negative impact on, on ROCE. So, so my point is that EPS actually reflects both the returns and the reinvestment levels, and, and ROCE only reflects the, the returns. Um, so my issue with EPS is more that it's very slow to reflect any, any um you know, the impact of capital allocation decisions by management. But that's the case for Roki as well. 
EPS can be misleading if you're if you're taking on lots of leverage at very low interest rates, right? So you're boosting the EPS number short term, and then you see an increase, as I'm sure we will now over the next few years, depending on how long and for how for how long and how high rates go. But you know, we could very well see this for companies that have been leveraging to sort of buy back shares, etc. Um, but once again, that's the same thing for Roki. If you're taking on lots of inexpensive um, financing, borrowed borrowed money, then you'll see a similar impact. So I think ultimately it's a valid it's a valid point, but I think in reality the important thing is to understand the sort of dynamic between these two metrics, right? Both uh, return levels and reinvestment rates. Um, I think the reason EPS is still so popular is because it's easy to communicate, right? Um, and I think for high-quality companies, it's also highly relevant. Um, I, I think his point is valid, but I think if you're looking at these large, uh, long-established, great businesses, I, I think the difference between the two or that distinction is often overdone. And touching on the reinvestment point, Smith is writing that this is one of the greatest risks for fund managers, that management fails to deliver high returns on capital on those retained earnings in the company. Um, but I mean, if you own the whole company, then you have control over the reinvestment. But for minor minority shareholders, and what do you think they can do to reduce the reinvestment risk in these public companies? Yeah, that's a great question, Eddie. I think... There's a few things they can do. First of all, you want to you probably want to invest in great companies, right? Where there's a long track record of high returns and uh, shareholder value creation. So you're looking for a great paper record. Second thing you can do is look at the shareholder register and try and find high quality investors. So Larry Cunningham's doing an interesting um, uh, sort of interest is doing interesting work on this at the moment through something he calls the Quality Shareholder Initiative. So, for instance, if I see Berkshire or Markel or Fundsmith or Linsell Train on the shareholder register, I'll be very comforted, right? Because I'll, I'll assume they've – I wouldn't rely on them to have done the due diligence, but I will assume that they encourage good behavior and good capital allocation and that they will make sure that minority shareholders are, are treated well. So that's the second point. And then thirdly, you probably want to consider liquidity. You know, in, the ca- in case you get things wrong, you want to be able to sell and – and limit your downside. So I think they're they're the three things I would look at primarily. Right. And uh, another great article in the book that Smith has written, uh, it was published in Financial Times in 2012. It's named uh, Lessons from Tour de France. So what can we learn from the tour when it comes to investing? So in this piece, he talks about how different investment strategies are built for different types of market environments. And which also means that in some market environments, you will inevitably underperform if you apply a consistent methodology, right? There, there's possibly some famous exceptions to this, like Jim Simmons at Renaissance and a few others. But I think the issue with that is that, that, that first of all, I don't think they're replicable by the vast majority of or almost all the other investors. And secondly, they're not the way you invest or operate if you're a long-term buy-and-hold equity investor. So the idea of this uh, lessons from Tour de France piece is, and and I think the reason he's written it is partly because he's a very keen cyclist, is that um, the analogy to the Tour de France is there's no rider that has won the Tour that has ever won all stages of it, right? So they tend to specialize in, in mountain stages or flat stages or the time trial. 
And similarly for fund managers and investment styles, they will work in certain environments and not in others, but they may still, they may still, you know, produce um, a sort of highly, highly competitive return over the long run. Um, I don't think he's saying we should, we shouldn't measure fund returns or share price, uh, total shareholder returns, et cetera. Um, I think he's just saying that we need to understand that sometimes you will underperform, you know, if you're applying a certain investment style consistently. And if you don't underperform, you underperform, you can expect to to outperform and, and you should probably go into an index fund or some, something like that. So, you know, the opposite of that would be people who rotate between sectors and, and or styles, you know, between value and growth and people who sort of market time. I don't attempt to do any of that and neither does um, Terry Smith. And I think the Tour de France piece is, is a good illustration of that. And talking about the debate about value versus growth, Smith uh, touches upon that as well and, and uses the term value investing to describe deep value plays and cigar butts, for example. Um, and if we stick to his definition of, of value investing, what's his main critique against it and, and also about special situations? Yeah, so he takes a view, I think, which is similar to Buffett's once again, in saying that growth is simply a, a component of value, right? So all, all intelligent, I think Buffett says this, all intelligent investing is value investing. And when Smith talks about value investing in the traditional sense, I think he, he's, he's arguing that the valuations are often or usually or almost always low for a reason, low for a reason, right? So they're usually a reflection of low quality when it comes to the business model or the balance sheet or the returns on capital or a combination of all these. And now, of course, um, you know, value stocks will have their day in the sun as we've seen over the last number of months. Uh, and we've seen that before and we'll see it again. But the issue Terry argues is that over time, shareholder returns should reflect the returns of the underlying business. And on that basis, almost by definition, value stocks should underperform if you look at very long time frames, right? Um, and now I'm talking decades as opposed to three or five or seven years. Um, I don't think it's fair to say that buying value stocks is a bad idea as such, but it doesn't suit your, if, if you're long term and you're low turnover like Fundsmith or or like ourselves, given that we're trying to benefit from those returns of the underlying business. Um, for me, it's also a question of this idea of investing in higher quality assets is also a question of downside protection and risk management. Um, and it's just more fun, right? You're, you're invested in these great businesses for years and decades. And I just find that much more satisfying than jumping from one investment to another. Yeah, it's very time consuming and also very costly in the transaction fee to be jumping Indeed. around. Um, I mean, you touched upon the, the turnover and Smith, he says that he would prefer to have zero turnover in the fund. And partly that is because he wants to minimize the fees. But uh, he also explains in the annual letters why he has sold certain holdings. So what are your key takeaways from uh, the art of selling? Yeah, so he has a very low turnover. Usually it's below 5%. Um, and he's clearly a big believer in Peter Lynch's, you know, mantra of running your winners. And I, I, I hear that from almost all the great investors I admire, that their biggest mistakes have been selling out of great businesses far too early. So 
there are cases when he would sell and you know i i tend to agree with these um the first one would be a deterioration in the business so he sold out of kimberly clark for instance back in 2011 and the reason he said at the time was because the the return on incremental capital was in decline and he felt the business was on the wrong path and so he sold out um the second one is valuation he sold out of SGS, for instance, the testing company, and he sold out of Domino's Pizza, although he later bought it back. Um, I think he feels the first reason, so the business, um, the, the deterioration in the business is much more valid as a reason for selling than the second one, the valuation point. Um, and, and there's a quote in one of the letters where he says that almost every time we sell a position in a quality company, we get to regret it in terms of subsequent share price performance. Um, I hear this idea of never selling great businesses from, from a lot of experienced investors. And it seems like many of them progress from selling on valuation to selling on deteriorating business performance over the span of their careers. Um, and, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I, I agree with, this notion we all, we also only sell if one the business deteriorates or two we learn something new about the business which we didn't know previously but it which means that the quality isn't perhaps quite as high as we thought very rarely may we sell because of opportunity costs right where a more interesting op- opportunity has sort of uh, presented itself um or, or, or even less um, common on valuation grounds. But I just find that usually if you find these great businesses, you want to leave the, the great forces of compounding alone to, to work their magic. I think Terry has a list of about 50, 60 stocks that he's following, in, which is his universe of potential uh, companies that he wants to invest in. Do you have like a similar approach or how big is your, your watch list? Yeah, it's very similar. So, uh, so you're right. He... In some of the annual letters, he refers to the investable universe. I think in the early years, he, the number w- was sort of in the mid-60s, and then you know, that's slowly expanded a bit to maybe 80 or so. Um, and we have, we have about 50, currently about 50 stocks in our investable universe over a number of, or across a number of sectors and geographies. Uh, we hold about 20 of them, and the, and the other 30 may move in into the portfolio at some point, depending on do we know the business? Know uh, do we know the business well enough? Um, uh, are we sort of comfortable on all the important aspects of the business and the investment case? And of course, valuation matters, right? So you 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 know, even if business quality is more important than valuation, I'd rather buy um, these great businesses, um, say in March, April, twenty twenty, or um, in the during the first half of this year that we've seen opportunities and we've bought into some of the things on that list. So yes, I think it's a very similar idea. And, you know, most of your time you spend uh, just maintaining that list, adding to some, sometimes moving from the list and occasionally moving something in from the list into the portfolio and vice versa. And how do you deal with, because it's quite interesting that the stocks typically in, in the universe you're talking about, they are not uh, typically as volatile as, as the rest of the market mainly probably because they are really stable businesses and and have been growing for a long time and and uh, profit i mean with profitability uh, how do you think uh, i mean because as you mentioned smith uh, moved into this uh, us technology stocks which yeah have been have been growing a lot and have been fantastic uh, 
investments for for a long time. But now we have seen uh, quite of a big turn in the market and and the volatility really shows up now with holdings such as Facebook. How do you think uh, Smith deals with that? Do you mean um, how he deals with like how he's able to sort of consistently outperform a class or no? So so yeah. To be to be clear in that is I mean if you have that uh, you have that group of, of companies and and you typically maybe as you said you you want to add to the ones that are um, priced lower and um, with technology stocks of course the the um, environment changes more quickly and. It's maybe a bit harder to to understand if if the if the multiple has gone down because of actual problems or um, or if it's uh, yeah just uh, because they are they are not uh, liked at the time. Yeah, I get your question. You know, I get it. No, that's a really good question. Um, I I actually asked Tom Gaynor this once, and he said, "You can never know. You can never be sure. You just uh, work, 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 and you know, you try and." Um, and you and and hopefully now and then you'll sort of you'll get it right. Um, I think one thing is that Terry tends to focus on these large, long-established businesses with um, great track records, which I think reduces the likelihood that he's buying into a um, sort of subpar quality business, um, right? Um, I mean, usually there's a few different reasons why you may get the opportunity to buy these kinds of businesses at an attractive valuation. So one of them would be a company-specific issue. So they bought into Facebook or now Meta, I think back in 2018 when the whole Cambridge Analytica story came out. Um, so that's one that's one type of situation. I find that to be the most difficult because, because of what you just said, Nicholas, that it's, in those situations, it's difficult to determine whether... Um, whether you're actually buying the same business at a lower valuation or whether the business has changed fundamentally and and the valuation is just a reflection of that. So I find that to be the most challenging type of buy and I generally stay away from it, although not always. Maybe, um, there's a couple of... Maybe if, you can, if, I, if I can just uh, chip in there. I think one, one thing I, I'm thinking about is that many of the businesses... Uh, I mean, in this group, uh, have been around for hundreds of years. I mean, some of the companies I know in your portfolio has been around for a very, very long time. And for example, Facebook has been around for less than 20 years and PayPal a bit more than 20 years and, and so on. So it's just a different type of animal in my view. I agree with you. So I, I have to say I agree. Now, it should be said we don't really, um, you know, we haven't really invested in, in many of the sort of... Um, types of companies that Terry has invested in in the last five years, we've, we've tended to stay away from them. Um, Terry always used to report, and I think he still does this, the average age um, or, or life of the companies in the portfolio. Um, and I, th- I think it's quite interesting that in recent years, he's obviously shifted the emphasis somewhat to companies with a shorter um, track record like PayPal and Meta, etc. Um, so I, I I agree with you there. I I I would I'm not saying that you should never look at those types of businesses, but I think for what we're trying to achieve, I'm less comfortable with that. Um, I should say there's a couple of other situations when you may be able to buy these businesses at a at a fair or attractive valuation. Um, so if the first one was uh, company specific issues, the second one would be a general market sell off. I find that's usually the most 
um, appealing to us. That's usually when we tend to be most active. So, you know, spring of 2020 or first half of this year, uh, because often it's to do with macro or interest rates or um, things that are separate from the business or, or partly or largely separate from the business we're looking at. The third one might be a sort of rotation in the market, which we've also seen in the last six, nine, 12 months, where, for instance, um, you know, higher interests, interest rates mean that the kind of companies that Fundsmith owns and, and actually to a large or to some extent, the kind of companies we own or some of them, like an Estee Lauder or a L'Oreal or anything that's rated at a meaningful premium to the market is sort of impacted disproportionately. And that can also create an opportunity to buy into these companies at an attractive valuation. But um, so I think they're probably the sort of three different uh, types of situations when you may when you may actually be able to act on 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 buying something from that uh, investable universe or shortlist. But I agree with you there. I also find it much more uh, difficult when, when it comes to businesses with a shorter uh, paper record. I mean, it, it was not meant as as criticism. It was more um it was in, it's interesting to have both of those kind of animals as i referred them to in the portfolio and, and how how do you like how do you allocate between the two and and how do you think about the investments maybe more importantly because i think you may, you need to think about them completely differently and be much more aware maybe of, about what's happening in happening in the competitive landscape and so on in in one in in the technology group and, and maybe not as much in the other group i can think I agree with that. And it's it's interesting because, you know, somewhere in the book, Terry talks about this idea of investing in companies. I think he says, I'm often asked, you know, how do you pick the next big winner? And he says, we're not, uh, you know, we're looking to invest in companies that have already won. But I have to say in the last three or five years, he has somewhat uh, diverged from that. Now, obviously, you could argue that companies like PayPal and Meta have already won as well, as well, but uh, I guess it's just that um, you know it's not, it's not sort of black or white here. It's a it's a sort of it, there's a big range of um, different types of situations. But I agree there's there's you know it, clearly he's shown himself to be very pragmatic and he's been able to sort of change the way he implements this idea of owning great companies, which I admire. I mean, we haven't done it to the same extent, and I see others who haven't. Uh, I look at a Tom Russo, for instance. You know, he's done some of that but not nearly as much as terry and i think there are you know there are you know i guess it comes back to this idea of of being true to who you are as an investor and, and as a person right yeah definitely so let's move over to your life as an investor and we already touched upon it your fund and your style and in the foreword of investing for growth lionel barber he's the editor at financial times he is describing terry smith as a fiercely competitive person and this is a trait that, for example, Richard Lawrence also highlighted about himself in episode 25 when we spoke to him. How would you describe yourself? Well, I think um, as opposed to Terry and Richard, uh, certainly not as a fiercely competitive person. I think, you know, I'm really more focused on the process of analyzing these businesses and and less on relative performance, at least in the short to medium term. I think it's partly also because of the way we're structured, right? I don't have any external investors, so I don't need to worry about short-term uh, performance. Obviously, the, in the very long run, you have to worry about it as a form of scorecard. Um, but a few other points. I, I would say, like, 
I'm sure most people you speak to, I'm, I'm obsessive, uh, obsessive about uh, investing and I really care about the process. Um, I think the way I invest, like for most people I see who've been in the industry for a long time is, is really a reflection of who you are as a person. So, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm in terms of the portfolio, I'm long-term, um, you know, we have ter- low turnover and I think, you know, it's a reflection of my personality when I, any type of decision, I, I usually take my time and, and I usually research it extensively, you know, whether it's buying property or, or deciding where to go on holiday. Um, and I, I, I think another important aspect is that I tend to worry, uh, whether it's generally or specifically when it comes to investing. So, you know, when, when I invest, I worry about, uh, what can go wrong. I look at downside protection first and I look at upside opportunity second. Um, so that could be owning great companies, not using leverage, diversifying to some extent. Um, and I think I'm pretty pragmatic. Uh, I try to, to, to look at what works for, for me. And I don't, I identify with this idea. I think Tom Gaynor expressed when he said he's a satisfier, not an optimizer. Right. So I think for me doing unexceptional things consistently for a long period of time is the way to go. Um, I'm not looking for, for, for these great home runs. I'm looking for great businesses at reasonable valuations. And then if I can do you know, double digit returns over long periods of time, then I'm, I'm really happy with that. Um, and there's a, I remember there's a, there's a line in, in the book from Terry where he says that, uh, at Fondsmith, we obtain excitement, not from the delusion that we have discovered an investment that no other investors have found or from a long shot winning, but from delivering predictable superior investment returns. And I think that's really the way I try to operate. Um, so, so I think there's some of the points that I think, you know, they apply to me both as a, as, as a person, as a human being, as, and as an investor. And I think when I look at the great investors over their careers, they seem to sort of mature into a version of, you know, the, the investor version, um, sort of converges towards the, 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 the human being they are, if that makes sense. And are there any challenges like with your personality and as an investor? Well, I guess one could be, for instance, that if you tend to worry about the downside, you may not, uh, you know, you, you may be sort of slow in uh, getting exposure to to the latest hot thing, right? To the, to the most exciting growth opportunities. So I sometimes, and I constantly um, sort of try and challenge myself on this and the directors I have, um, on the, on the board of the company, I, you know, I, I asked them to challenge me on this idea that, you know, should we, should we have more exposure to, to us tech, for instance, we've had that maybe not so much now, but certainly over the last five years, we've had that conversation, you know, we're largely exposed to consumer goods and industrials. Um, so I think that's one, uh, challenge, um, that, that may, that may, may in fact be the most significant one. Um, and of course, if you're very, long term and and you're sort of slow slow to move that may also mean that you're late to catch on to some sort of trends and the latest developments in some ways but i guess at the same time i think it's manageable because you know that's not really what i'm trying to do as as terry said uh, at some point you know we're we're trying to look for companies that have already won really and we and we try and 
buy them when the odds are in our favor. And talking about this constant worrying, what what kind of mistakes would you really punish yourself for having made? So generally, I always say it's too early to <laughs> evaluate whether it's a success or a mistake, right? You know, we, I've only been investing this portfolio for seven years now, which in my mind is a pretty short time span. Um, but there are, I mean, there are holdings in there that we feel have disappointed. So one example is Conan Schindler, the the elevator companies. And clearly the, you know, I think they're great businesses, but the Chinese construction market has, has turned down significantly. And, and I think it's had a, it's had a big impact on the businesses, but it's had, had an even greater impact on investor sentiment, especially for Conan, because China has been a clear growth driver for, for them for a long time. And it, it accounts for a large proportion of their earnings. Um, so in that case, we sort of always knew that the market would have to slow down at some point. Um, but it has been disappointing to see that earnings have gone nowhere for, for almost a decade or certainly for five, six, seven years in those businesses. Um, so sometimes I, you know, that, that can be frustrating. Um, I would say though, that even, although it's been a disappointment, um, we've managed to avoid losing money on those positions or, or significant amounts of money. And that comes back to this idea of downside protection, right? So I, I find that encouraging. And then secondly, my view is that it's probably a cyclical issue rather than a structural issue. And I think they remain great businesses, but they're the kind of things that perhaps uh, frustrate me. Um, I think the other thing would be selling out of great businesses too early. I mean, I think you probably hear that from almost anyone who's a long-term quality-minded investor that, um, that that's really the sort of frustrating, fr- frustrating part. And can you give an example of uh, like one of the best investments and what you have learned from that? Yeah, there's a, I, once again, I think it's probably too early to say if the, if they really are great investments, you know, it's, it's only been seven years. Um, and I always say there's always plenty of time for things to go wrong, but, but if I look at what's worked for us so far, um, it's really been the truly great businesses. And so one, one example is spirits companies. So we own Diageo, David Campari, Remy Control. Um, we've, we've owned them from, for a number of years and they continue to grow organically. They make interesting acquisitions. They improve their profitability and they've, they've also shown to themselves to be very robust throughout the pandemic and the, the inflation sort of pickup we're seeing now. So 2020 and 2021 were great in, stress testing some of these companies um and and the spirits companies came through incredibly well and i would i would argue that our holdings in lvmh lvmh and Hermes um have have done similar things so so it's really been uh, you know it's really been a case of buying and owning these great businesses and i think um going back a bit to to the discussion about investment philosophy i think at red eye we have a similar investment philosophy as as you have but we are working in an ecosystem which is quite different. So we follow typically smaller and and businesses with high growth rates. And uh, I mean, it's of course more uncertain uh, on uh, I mean how the economics will will progress with uh, I mean gross margins, free cash flow, and and return on capital employed. Many of these businesses are are quite early stage, and you have to more or less bet on how the margin profile will look when they are more mature. 
Um, but of course, if you're right, you have a you have a home run. So it, it's the same philosophy. But when we have these different types of of, uh, of of companies, of course, it's you need to think about it quite differently. We we touched upon it when discussing Meta and, and PayPal, for example. But what would make you comfortable buying a company that is not as mature as the companies you mentioned? So, in principle, we can buy these small companies, Nicholas, and we and we have done so in the past on a few occasions. Um, but I'm I'm more comfortable with the mid to large cap segment, um, partly because I've spent most of my career covering those sort of companies, and I think partly, you know, it's partly a personality thing. I like looking at businesses where I get great access to information, you know, whether it's annual reports or uh, sell side research, selectively, of course, um, an expert networks, etc. And that's much harder when you're looking at smaller companies. Um, and I just quite like operating in that environment. Um, I would also say, I wouldn't necessarily label most of the holdings in our portfolio mature. Um, you know, they're, they're relatively large companies often. Um, they're sort of, you know, compared to Fundsmith, we have a smaller average market cap. So we're probably the lower end of my portfolio is probably at around 10 billion US. But still, um, but what I do see is they have organic growth rates that would typically be, f- say, four to eight percent, sometimes a little higher than that. Um, and and underlying earnings tend to be growing at ten percent plus over very long periods of time. So, with the hurdle rate of ten percent or so that we operate with, I don't really feel I need to go any further out on that risk curve to to achieve the sort of goals. Now, obviously, I'd like to do. 12 or 14 or 15 percent but but you know i don't that's not my planning assumption and that's not my hurdle rate um and i think it's also a case of almost by definition if i'm looking for great companies with with long track records often they're already relatively large companies right if you've been a great business for long enough then you're probably already a, a meaningful at least uh market cap um and I just really like being invested in those sort of companies. I'd, I, you know, I'd rather earn ten percent doing what I'm doing now than twelve percent buying and selling some low quality um, sort of commodity type businesses. And to conclude this part of the uh, interview, what is your long term ambition with uh, building and Verwaltning? So it's it's pretty simple in a way. I'm I'm hopeful that we can compound the capital in there at at double digits at least for the, for the very long term with the limited downside. Um, and then being a true family business, the ultimate goal is obviously to develop and grow the whole thing so that you can hand it over to the next generation 30 or 40 years down the road, hopefully, and, and you know, feeling happy with what you've achieved and, and leaving a meaningfully more valuable business. Um, so that's, you know, in a way, it's as simple as that. Um, obviously a lot of things go into that. Um, the other thing is I want to have fun in the process, right? The, the, the money is important and the scorecard is important, but, um, you know, you, because you want to be able to live a good life and, and you want to be able to sort of, um, you want feedback on what you're doing, but, but the real reward is, is getting to do something you love, right? I can't really imagine doing anything else. And another thing I know that you love is reading books. Uh, can you mention one or two titles that you think are underrated among investors? Yeah, sure. So I think in terms of 
a toolbox, analytical tools, I would uh, recommend quality investing by Cunningham. Obviously, we covered that, as you mentioned, on, I think, episode eight back in November of 21. But I think it's such a great book because it covers both the philosophy and the implementation of investing in, in great businesses, similar to, and actually it's written with, Cunningham wrote that book together with a couple of guys from AKO Capital. So similar to the to Terry's book, it's also uh, it's also very practical, and there's lots of case studies in there. I think that's a great book, uh, and I think it's the re- and the examples I've picked. I I try to think of books that I think are underrated because, of course, I also love all the the usual suspects. Um, the other one is Capital Returns. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's undiscovered, but I don't think it's widely read. Um, and this the format of that book is similar to Investing for Growth. So it's a collection of articles by by investors at Marathon Asset Management. But the, what really makes it different is that it um, it spends most most of its uh, emphasis on the supply side of the equation. So understanding the inflow of capital into various industries, which is critical if you want to understand how durable returns are. So so the, there are two books I would recommend: Quality Investing by Cunningham and and Capital Returns by uh, by the Marathon team. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Christian, for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts on the book, Investing for Growth, as well as your investment style. Do you have anything else you want to add? Well, I just I just want to say uh, thank you for having me. I think you're doing a really great job with uh, the podcast. I've I've listened to many of the episodes with, I recently listened to Richard Lawrence. I, I, I listened to Chris Mayer. I think they, they were superb. Um, and I like the fact that unless, I have to say, unless... Um, or unlike a lot of other investor podcasts, it, it really is one for the nerds, which is uh, my sort of thing. And, uh, and lastly, where can our audience follow you? And thank you, of course, for, for all those kind kind words. No, thank you. Yeah, so they can uh, follow us, uh, me, through our website. So it's billingerforvatling.se. And you can subscribe to a newsletter there. Um, and you can also find us on LinkedIn. And, and of course, if, if anyone's interested in discussing uh, you know great businesses i'd be i'd be delighted to perfect thank you thank you thank you for listening to investing by the books a podcast by red eye follow us on twitter at ib underscore red eye and email us at ib.podcast at red to improve we'd love to hear your feedback so please rate and review us notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.